Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cast of Call, where we talk all things related to Stephen King's Dark Tower series. I'm your host, Rachel, and joining me is the other half of my quartet, the man who blasts dirty books in his own garage, <laughs> the one and only DJ. <laughs> I was just telling Rachel before the podcast that I was playing this this uh, book one more time before we get to the chapter on my speaker in my garage and like cleaning. And when they get to the like really uh, uh, cheeky bits, I'm looking around like making sure that no one sees me and feeling like a little self conscious because I'm like just cleaning my garage here. I promise, <laughs> no problem. Yeah, if this one is like I said, of this uh, probably the spiciest episode or chapter in a while. I'm trying to think if we've had any. I mean, I guess we've had spicier ones from in the last book, but I don't know. This one felt a little felt a little naughtier, but we'll get to that. We'll get to that. So plan for this episode. We're going to kick off the show with our in-depth conversation about chapter seven on the drop. And then we have a fun feedback question from our Facebook group from listeners. And we'll close out the show with that. So DJ, before we go any further, though, can you please remind our listeners of what our spoiler policy is? And we promise we will adhere to it. Go. Like a sawdust pile in my garage, I promise not to step in it and tell you what is going on past this chapter. And that stepping on means a giant warning of gunk on your shoe about where we are going in the future. So we promise in that non-convoluted way to tell you that we are going to the spoiler zone ahead of time. There you go. That's your warning. We will give you a warning in advance. Done. Throw it against the wall. See if it sticks. <laughs> awesome all right before we get uh, get into the review we did get a new review on itunes from a very kind listener from john may 72 who says a must listen longtime dark tower fan first time podcast reviewer oh that's nice rachel and dj are great together with humor and deep insight into the series much more in depth than i have read into these books fantastic job keep them coming p.s you guys are wary trig wary trig you are <laughs> well played john my <laughs> now you got me worried like what's what's coming on the bad side Oh, I mean, I've read them on the show. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, nothing you haven't heard. <laughs> I promise. Like, I don't think. Although, who knows? I only look at iTunes. It could be, like, a total bloodbath on Spotify. <laughs> Man, I have no idea. I guess I probably should look at those, huh? <laughs> All right. Problem for another day. That's a future Rachel problem. Awesome. So thank you so much, John, for taking the time to write the review. We really appreciate it, especially as a first-time podcast reviewer. That That means a lot. If, like John, you had some feedback on the podcast you wanted to share, you wanted to review of us on iTunes, please do so and we will read it on the show. All right, let's get into the chapter. Where did we leave off, DJ? Uh, so the the gang had just had their epic battle and escape and so on, and uh, the stories are being told in the future past and, and all over the area as this marvelous young crew had defeated the uh, coffin hunters or got the drop on them, so to speak. Mm -hmm. uh, and now we have Susan riding through the uh, landscape. And then we cut from that to wait, Susan wait, let's, and her We gotta aunt. stop. We gotta stop. We gotta stop. Okay. So before we go too much <laughs> further, I have some thoughts on this first scene. So as you described, Susan is like super – she's upset about something and she's like out riding her horse kind of just short. And her shirt got her in trouble. Yes. And she had – we discovered that they had fought about the shirt. But – 
we see her kind of in her element, right? She's riding a horse, you know, she's upset about something, but she's, she's using something she loves to kind of like put some distance between herself and what's upsetting her. She's like kind of trying to run away from her problems, but not necessarily succeeding because she cannot get Will Dearborn out of her head. But they take pains to describe that what she's wearing for one thing, obviously that leads into our next section where we find out that they've been arguing about what she wears when she's writing. But I also kind of feel like it's emblematic of Susan as she truly is. We've seen her in various outfits over the last few chapters. You know, she's in a gown at this gala. She's wearing a, a proper dress to go see Rhea this time. Now she's just wearing jeans and her father's like, faded old shirt and and i kind of feel like this is actually the truest version of lucine susan like in a better version of hambry and a better version of her life where she could be herself this is the susan that i think we would see as opposed to all of the other ones there's for some reason i i thought like when they were describing her clothing that maybe she was wearing like a grunge 90s flannel (laughs) and like jeans no i totally was picturing kind of like a faded flannel yeah and like maybe some oversized jeans i'm guessing it's much more western style but that is hopefully she's rocking the jinkos right oh my god God, someone who is good at Photoshop. I need Susan Delgado on a pair of Junko jeans immediately. (laughs) (laughs) There is one other little detail in this section I wanted to pull out before we move forward, and that's the name of her horse is Pylon, which you're someone who works in the electrical field, I would say, right? Is that accurate? Uh, Sort of, yeah. All right. So a pylon, as you know, is a tower that is used for carrying power lines high above the ground, which I mean, I don't, I I feel this is very deliberate. It's kind of subtle and and anachronistic, but also it is kind of symbolically a reminder of the tower because you have the tower that's surrounded by the beams. I just thought this is kind of like a subtle little easter egg right and i think that as you go through roland's history littered throughout it are all of these little references to the tower some of them overt some of them more subtle and i feel like pylon is one of the more subtle ones that's actually a a weird bit because in the power industry no one calls them pylons no really towers oh Um, uh, a pylon is actually what we refer to as like those uh things that keep you from running into stuff that are stuck in the mm-hmm. ground yeah so you know like the cement poured like rounded yellow blockers in front of like air conditioners and stuff yeah. like that in parking lots so i actually had to google this and like sure enough there you are <laughs> there we- high above the ground like did not know that was a thing i just his name kept coming up so it made me google it and then i was like <gasps> Whoa. <laughs> yeah, and then when you're like, DJ will know, and you said pylons, I'm like, the cement blockers that keep you from <laughs> running into buildings? Like, that's weird. That's a strange thing. Okay. I mean, I'm. you could probably read into that symbolism as well, but... Well, I, I guess if we start. went from that route, like, he's a strong, sturdy force beneath her. Yes, her that's true. Dainty that's legs. True. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> All right, let's 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 get our first patented Stephen King's flashback within a flashback. Yeah, so this like this gets confusing because we start out in the future with her writing and like wearing her father's shirt and like kind of alluding to that shirt was what caused her some trouble. Mm-hmm. And then we like bounce back in time uh, to Susan and her aunt Cord in the morning, like in this sort of like wake up routine where Aunt Cord is like 
you get like pictures ahead and behind of the timeline as they're like interacting. Mm-hmm. And, and so if, if we go in like chronological order, Aunt Cord has been like fidgeting with this uh, fester on her lip all morning while like brooding over her breakfast. And Susan has like completed all of her chores and done everything else and then like comes down to the table with an orange and her father's shirt on. And the father sh- – well, the orange first starts the the kind of like battle. And it's like, well, you're not eating enough. And like if you're going to go riding, you're going to need more food. Have some of this. No, I'm fine, aunt. Argue back and forth. And then like the aunt brings up the shirt and she's like, this is my father's shirt. And then they get into sort of like an argument about the clothing that Lord Thorin has sent for her and that she should wear it. And then her aunt brings up like her house and then she blows up and is mm-hmm. like, no, this is our house. And we brought you in because you were destitute and going to be basically in the poor house. And we let you move into this house. It's our house. And why should I be thankful that they have given me back the horse that I helped you know, raise and, and it starts to like roll out as this, this sort of like aunt th- uh, cord is like trying to like stand the high ground to say like, did you even finish your chores girl? Cause you're lazy and you're a piece of crap. And she's like, I already did all my chores and you know it. And you were sitting here picking at that boil, like thinking about, <laughs> you know, your dude that's going to come down here and hang out and being grumpy that I'm still in the house for longer and not getting your money. Mm-hmm. And, and like this interaction and I'm paraphrasing because, like, it, there's a, Rachel will get into the subtle details, but there's a really awesome point where, like, Aunt Cord, as a response, is like, "What you want some money? I got the money right here in my mm-hmm. purse." And like, does that like fake storm off to the purse? Yeah, but like, only kind of opens it up and only like kind of casually pretends to like be upset to reach into it. And, and Susan's like onto this. She's like, "You don't even care." You, you know, like, I don't want your your horse money anyway. And then, you know, Aunt Cord, who, like, basically knows that all of these insults that Susan's slinging at her are legitimate facts, not yeah. just made-up things. <laughs> and you're like, no, 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 you were a bad person. Yeah. You, you did some bad stuff. You talked this, girl, this young girl into, like, getting in a really bad spot. And now you're, like, backtracking and trying to say that, like, basically you and and Thorin uh, have the best interests out for her and, like, she's going to have – uh, you know, a really important kid, just like all the other Jillies that had great kids mm-hmm. uh, because of it. And like, you start to genuinely feel dirty and like it, it rises to the point where Aunt Cord slaps her. And then Susan kind of like makes a, a joke of it. It's like, you've forgotten these other things pretty easily. You'll probably forget this by yeah. this afternoon while you're counting your coin, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, dang girl, you're actually telling her what's up. Yes. And, and and so, like, that, like, basically leads into her storming out, and then we go back to the future okay. of her storming let's, around on the on the horse. All right, let's pause here, because there's a bunch of stuff that happens in this section that we should definitely at least touch on, which is, I think there's some interesting insights right away that Susan is having, essentially that, I mean, these two are not getting along. There is so much tension in this house, and in part of it is because... Cord is greedy and wants the money that she has to wait now until fall for. But I think it's very insightful that Susan really recognizes that beyond that, the larger problem is just that 
They're sick of being in the same house together. You know, Corb is expecting to have the house to herself. Maybe she was going to entertain her little boy toy Jonas, you know, and here is Susan just taking up space, looking hot, not making money for her. (laughs) And and I think people like, especially now in quarantine, this is probably something that resonates, right? Like you, you, when you have no space and you think you're going to get it and then it doesn't happen, you know, that can be really frustrating. And there's, um, I'm going to read you a quote from this because I actually think this is pretty uh, well written. I mean, uh, spoiler alert, Stephen King is a good writer. Uh, Okay. (laughs) (laughs) He says, they grated against each other, each word seeming to produce a spark. And that was not surprising. The man who had loved them both enough to make them love each other was gone. And, you know, aside from that just being really sad, I mean, that dynamic in and of itself, it tells you how their relationship has degraded. And we know Cord as she is now, but there was a time where there was love between them. And that's very tragic. And then obviously, like, we're joking about Jonas being a boy toy, but we knew that he had intentionally planned to go talk to Cord at the party and sort of ingratiate himself with her. The thing I took away from that was assuming that it was at the party he was going to try to chat her up and get this, some inside scoop. But what we're finding out here is that he actually had more of a long-term plan here. Mm-hmm. He is maintaining a relationship with her. And interesting because we've seen both sides of it, but also kind of closes in all of the different players, right? At one point, Susan was kind of like on a little Venn diagram with Roland off to her side but now with the inclusion of Eldred Jonas and Cord everybody's getting pulled to the center of the of the conflict you know what I mean in a way that I think is really it's just like very good writing I think yeah and there's actually a couple of uh, spots in here too where like Stephen King compares the old and the young like Mm -hmm. one on on her way out and like worried about her neck and the other one at the edge of her prime like Mm -hmm. reaching towards her her female stride and, and, and those two things. And then like with that same statement that you quoted right after that, he says, and only his love for the two brought them together. Yeah. Which means like basically like they never would have cared for each other if he hadn't forced them to. Right. Right. It's pretty sad. But then so, it's also super bad that like she's using the memory of her father, mm-hmm. who they both loved, as like a tool to like manipulate her and pull her towards whatever end goal she's got. Totally. Yeah. I mean – I, and on one hand, I came away from this chapter feeling very confirmed in my dislike of Cord, but I there is a little part of me that has some sympathy for her because one of the things that we really come away from this knowing is that is kind of again the situation that these two women are in prior to this deal with Thorne, like what the social and sexual dynamics are in Hambury what a disadvantage it puts both of these women in, and be, simply because her father had passed away, and we know that. Pat took Cord in. So at one point she apparently had nowhere to go, which I we don't I don't know that we ever get any backstory of what that means, but I think you can sort of extrapolate what how insecure a situation it is to be a single unmarried woman without maybe without the support of family. So on one hand I can kind of identify with the desperation that would lead you to considering something like Thorin's offer, especially if it really is something that is not totally socially frowned upon, it doesn't have like huge lifelong impacts for Susan. But at the same time, I don't feel like she's having any compunction around it, which makes me feel like she is actually a bad person. I just think it's more complex. And I think that that's actually one of the strengths of, of this 
of her as a villain is because she is you can kind of understand her motivation she's not just you know twirling her mustache and counting her money like there is some sort of social dynamic behind the decisions that she's making i don't agree well, with okay. them but I don't, I don't like her, but... So there's actually a point in this section where, like, Stephen King stops and says, like, from Susan's perspective, that, like, she wasn't always a horrible person. Right. That, like, at one point, she was just a struggling lady trying to get by. And then Susan also mentions that if, for the lack of papers, like, we have lost the yeah. rights to this and to that and so on. And, like, basically what we we're coming to understand is that, like... Her father was the paper holder for the property, the horses, and so on. And, like, because of either poor maintenance or possible theft, uh, which I'm leaning towards the second one since Aunt Cord has been, like, in cahoots with what's-his-name uh, right. <laughs> for a while, um, they have found themselves in a position where, like, the lord of that area can say – Hey, you don't have proof that this is yours. Even if we've seen you there and everybody knows it, like, where's the paperwork? Right. And, and like, that's an easy card they can pull because in this feudal society, like, women basically don't have as much power as, as men do. Right. And, and so it gives them, like, a vulnerability that they otherwise would be able to escape if mm -hmm. the, the man and their, their relationship was there or she was married or whatever. Yeah. I mean, you're right. It's it's extra bittersweet knowing that the things that this this like, you know, Thorin is being so generous with them, but he's being generous with them with their with, own stuff. With their own stuff, <laughs> their own their own land, their own home, their the horse that she herself like you said raised, you know, and and if you add to that the next layer, which we'll get into in a little bit. I'm kind of, I'm skipping ahead, but if what we think actually happened with Pat Delgado is true which i'm leaning towards that he didn't die by accident you that's like a whole nother level of villainy right there that basically thorin part of a conspiracy that yep. potentially led to her father being murdered and then using her vulnerability after that murder and her own property in order to coerce her into a relationship like that is some next level messed up <laughs> so so yeah the other thing i really liked about this section is actually the argument itself it feels very realistic where it starts kind of like two people there's tension in the room and you know you've probably been in this exact argument where there's tension in the room and you're both just kind of poking at each other and then it starts as some like little petty thing and then so at some point somebody says the wrong thing and it blows up and all of this other stuff all the stuff that you guys are just like it has been unsaid comes bursting out of your mouth it felt very like a real argument it felt the escalation felt very real and it also felt like a very much a mom and teenager fight <laughs> i just think it's really great but at the same time like you know everything she's saying is totally true the way we find out tons of information of exactly how she was coerced and and we were watching how cord basically rewrites history in real time and the sad thing is all of the things that Susan is saying, and even though she does get in a couple of um, like really great emotional blows that feel cathartic as a, a reader who's been kind of yelling this at the books, you know, this whole time, at the end of the day, you know, she can be right as she can be completely right, but it doesn't really matter because aside from that emotional release that we got, you know, she's, she's made an agreement. She's going to stick to this agreement. 
as we can see, the power dynamics in Hambry mean that there are probably going to be some pretty intense consequences if she breaks that agreement. So she can scream and point out all of Cord's wrongdoing, but at the end of the day, she's still in the same exact trap. And the trap, essentially, as much as she loves her father, as much as the memory of her, you know, him is so precious to her, he has essentially become a trap for her. Her memory of him prevents her from making these choices that, you know, we as readers want her to make, you know, to get out of this thing. And there's another really great quote before we move on. Uh, she says, and she knew that however fast she rode Pylon along the drop, she could not outrace her knowing. She had agreed. And no matter how horrified Pat Belgato may have been at the fix she had gotten herself into, he would have seen one thing clear. She had made a promise and promises must be kept. Hell awaited those who would not do so. So on one hand, again, basically it's this promise, like this respect she has for her father is going to keep her, prevent her from breaking her promise. But also there's kind of a little subtle foreshadowing in this, I think, or at least a threat of foreshadowing, which is the hell awaited those who do not do so. So in addition to kind of the consequences that we know from the dynamics of the town, I think that there is some Stephen King signaling, foreshadowing. If she breaks this promise, there will be consequences. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> with all of the mischievousness going into, like, getting her into that position to begin yeah. with, like, you, you step out of that, you're pulling – you're pulling the linchpin out. You know? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, but I mean specifically, like, narratively, like, he's kind of – I feel like he's kind of raising his hand and being like – if she does this, just so you know, this is not going to go well. <laughs> so, well, yeah. it's it's also sort of like that weird honor thing. So, like mm -hmm. a lot of times, Stephen King likes to trap their his characters in this sort of like I have a set of strict beliefs and rules, <laughs> right? And if right. I don't follow those, then who am I? <laughs> right. And like that's where she's at right now. Yeah. Where it's like she knows that like everything's effed up and like this is bad and like she should probably just like disappear into the night. But she has a strict set of moral compass that she follows. And if she doesn't stick to that, then she will dishonor her father. Yeah. And that's actually like sort of true and also like a real people trap. So that is you know, watch true. out for that. that Don't is let your true. honor trap you. Uh uh give up if you think that it sucks and like move on to something else. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's good to have ethics, but like also nuance, also nuance. Just saying, just saying. You don't want to John Snow it. That's all I'm saying. You don't know what that means, but trust me, it, it's accurate. <laughs> all right, cool. So let's move on. Okay. So uh, as we do with Stephen King's often bouncing timelines, yes. uh, we jump back to Susan again, writing on the drop now sort of having like an internal judgment call and think about of Roland and, mm. uh, or Will Dearborn, let's go with his uh, uh, pseudonym here. Uh, and he, he's a, uh, makes her angry. He's, he's rich. He probably had everything he ever wanted hand to him. Yeah. He doesn't understand where she's at or what she has going on in her life. I'm a young person. Grr, raise my fists like tiny, uh, tiny little antennas to the sky. <laughs> <laughs> and shake them at God because, yes. boy, this is really upsetting. And, and so it's just like <laughs> her, her sort of like teenage angsty, like roaming the prairie next to the drop, being grumpy about Roland and, yeah. and the choices. And then like kind of like re-reviewing her own choices and like i believe that quote that you just gave uh was actually from this particular section uh while she's riding the drop thinking about like where she's stuck and like mm -hmm. her father and so on and so basically 
Uh, the takeaway is swirling emotions girl rides horse across prairie near drop, <laughs> uh, being angry at the world and also in love with a man who she's angry with. Yeah, she needs to have some like Tori Amos bumping. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or wait, that was just me. <laughs> I can totally remember like the era of hormones when I would be like driving around on the backgrounds, like listening to Tori Amos. Like, you, you sure this isn't like Lisa Loeb? Like, you only care when you care when you Yes, wants. exactly. <laughs> She got it. Lisa Loeb gets it. <laughs> Lisa Loeb. That is not a singer I have thought about in many a year. <laughs> See, you never know what adventure you're going to go on when you when you come on the cast of Call, okay? <laughs> oh, shit. Okay. All right. You got three stars here, so I'm going to pause and let you. Oh, no. You can go a little bit further. You can go a little bit further. I mean, because we got to get into the Shimi thing. Okay, okay, so then we continue to bounce about in time. Yes, we're going um, back again. Back, back, so, back again. And, and thankfully, uh, Rachel wrote notes with uh, stars on here, so it's reminded me to, like, <laughs> stay in order <laughs> as opposed to just, like, roll forward. Uh, but so we bounce back again in time, and, like, Aunt Cord apparently is allergic to bees. And so she's working in the garden uh, wearing this, like, mummy-esque outfit with like a zip up hood uh so that if she were to be uh, uh attacked by a bee like there's a, a protection around her so she doesn't die and uh susan's like in another part of the yard doing her own thing and like shimi comes rolling up to the gate like at first unnoticed carrying flowers and, and sort of like walks up to susan and and uh, begs her pardon and then like has this bouquet of uh, pretty beautiful, not just picked, but also like grown flowers, a mix that is considerably more um, beautiful than you would expect for an area like this. Like the description mm -hmm. makes you feel like uh, an artisan put it together, even though we're in an area where like there's lots of dead stuff and like flowers don't necessarily uh, propagate in a really easy manner. Well, I mean, and I, I think Hambry is very pastoral and it's before the world has moved on, right? Well, we but we get mentions and like this is bouncing around a bit, but like uh, uh, Shimi is excited to get a new color of flower because oh, like, right. they don't have it available in that area, and so it's sort of like any small town, like what's available is there, and then if you're getting artistic with it, like a, a mix of wildflowers and then like locally grown flowers. Mm -hmm. It's still – it's an impressive bouquet for yeah. what you would see in this area. And, and Shimi brings it up to her and like is kind of like coy about who it's from but like mentions his three friends mm -hmm. and, and hands her uh, the note that Mr. Dearborn has left for her. And like in the meantime, her aunt who's like somewhat studious, like – Susan is at the gate. Yes. She is quite <laughs> the prison guard, man. She is on that shit. Yeah. It and so Susan, like, kind of quickly, like, shushes Shimi, like, fearful that this guy is going to, like, drop drop the card on her um, mm -hmm. and, and ex explain, like, what's going on. And she, like, hides the note, takes the flowers, and Aunt Cord comes rolling around, like, scares the crap out of Shimi. And Shimi, it's kind of fun because, like, at first Stephen King kind of uh, painted him as an imbecile, like, running around the bar doing, like, crappy work. But then we find out that Shibi's, like, actually 
like uh, he's got a, a, a witty side to him. Like yeah. he's not he's not as dumb as as they painted him earlier. Right. Uh, she was like, "I'm sorry, my empty head won't tell me who sent these flowers. I am just a loss for words, and I can't even remember." <laughs> you know. And like Aunt Cord, it's funny because. You almost get this picture of this weird, archaic way of of treating folks that uh, are handicapped that it's... is, like, super weird and, like, um, cringy, I guess. Uh, yeah. Where she, like, has to speak slow and very loud. But the problem is, is, like, Shimi is neither deaf nor ignorant of language. Yeah. So speaking slow and loud it's not as though you are talking to an older person who is lacking hearing. <laughs> right. You're talking to a guy that like, yeah, he has some mental disabilities, but he's not unable to understand the words that are coming out of your mouth. Right. Right. And then like to offer, I don't know how money works in this neck of the woods, but it almost seemed insulting to offer him like a petty. Right. <laughs> I mean, like, I mean, it comes back to the first thing she says about him is that he's a fool. And she yeah. treats him as such, but he's not a fool. No, he has he has a developmental delay, but he's not a fool. No, exactly. And, and so Shimi like plays it. He plays into it. Like he's like, mm-hmm. "Oh, I'm sorry. I'm just so dumb. I don't even know." <laughs> and yeah. like, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Say no more. Say no more. And it's like sort of this like fun little bit that Shimi's doing, and and like. Because of that, like Shimi as a character grows probably tenfold in this little section yeah. because you go from like kind of disregarding the character as a whole other than like a plot point to like mm-hmm. get an action scene going into like, dang, dude, you got you got your own legitimate thing going on. And like it's it's interesting. And like I, I want to know more Shimi. about you. I love Shimi. I came away from this chapter just like I just adore him. I think he's too pure for this world. Well, the, so the one other thing I wanted to point out, and I, I don't know why I focus on this. Um, it's maybe kind of weird. But, like, Stephen King goes out of his way to describe Shimi's teeth as being, like, perfect and clean and, and white. And, like, mm-hmm. I, I I thought about that for a second. I'm like, we're in a, you know, a, a Western society with, like, no real dental work or, mm-hmm. you know, any hy- hygiene to speak of, let alone, like, fluoride or the modern things. And, like, out of everybody, this guy manages to have perfect teeth. Yep. Like, wh- what does that say? Like, there's a there's a hint there. And a lot of times Stephen King gives these types of characters, like, a bit of psychic powers or uh, some special ability. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I think in this case, like, that's sort of what's going on, too. Like, Shimi may not be smart in one way, but in other ways, he has mad skills. Yeah. And I think that's why his appreciation of the people that saved him is so heartfelt is because he doesn't just realize that he didn't die. He realizes the depths to which those guys exposed themselves in order to protect him. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. And maybe I'm going too deep on Shimei. No, 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 um, I don't think so. I think that something that actually comes out repeatedly throughout this entire chapter, I hadn't. I hadn't thought about it like this, but one of the things that comes up is just basically that there are various kinds of intelligence. And mm-hmm. it's specifically talking about Roland versus Elaine versus Cuthbert. But yeah. I also think that that's probably – we could trace that back to Shimi as well. Like maybe he is doesn't have like a strong intellect, but he has, an, he has some instinct to him and some emotional intelligence. Yes, yes, um, exactly. That, that I think people like Cord overlook. 
and where Susan picks up on it and where the guys, I think, based on the fact that they're all little friends now, which is the cutest thing ever, <laughs> uh, also picked up on it. So I think you're right. I had not put those things together, but I think you're actually – that is totally true. So uh, enough about Shibi. So Aunt Cord basically is like kind of um, – kind of mad and like sends him off and like not even a goose feather for you kid get out of here and like shimi goes and and then she like looks at susan and is basically like get those into water and then like kind of evilly smiles and when susan like looks up at her this is that moment i was talking about where like she thinks for a moment internally like this woman didn't used to be evil right <laughs> and like now she's fallen into that and then like we sort of get a little bit of dichotomy of susan herself and her aunt mm-hmm. um basically internally explaining how how much they don't like each other and how they purposely were staying like far apart in the garden yeah and that they're just <laughs> too much for each other anymore and like yeah. two women in one house is you know one woman too many basically yeah yeah yeah, yeah. uh th- yeah this section is interesting like i said it we we get some more of their dynamic in terms of that we have the big blow up, but it's something that's been brewing. It's been brewing. Everybody's been avoiding each other for a little while as it's been, you know, ever since ever since Susan met Will Dill Dearborn, she went from being kind of like docile and kind of willing to go along with this to pushing back and actually feeling very resentful about it because he is making her face like feelings of shame around it and also realizing what she's giving up. And, and so this has been, this has been cooking for a little while. Uh, fortunately that works out in their favor because it means they were not standing together when Shimi came up with the note in hand talking about his three best friends. Um, but yeah, so like I said, Shimi love him in the section like you, I felt like we, you, you went from being like, this is a side character that just, serves to move like you know move the plot forward as opposed to like oh wait this is actually like a character of import which again goes back to i was like oh this is why he was the chapter was named after him but so he arrives with the with the flowers and the notes and there's a couple of subtle things in this section the first goes back to your comments about the bouquet um and the fact that it is wildflowers mixed with roses putting aside your feelings on roses <laughs> about roses yes. sorry everybody I... Uh, I think it is a potent symbol on, in the series right everybody when you hear rose if you're listening reading these books your ear goes like Burr. what did you say because you know roses have such important in this in these stories i just heard trash flower i'm sorry <laughs> Okay, so in this case, they're pink trash flowers, and uh, which is obviously a lighter shade of red, which is the symbol of the thing that later Roland becomes completely obsessed with. Currently, his obsession is Susan. But it's also just, like you said, there's not a lot of variety of flowers here. And so the fact that he picked wildflowers and also got roses says he must have got them from multiple sources, which shows mm-hmm. a lot of effort and thought went into the, the to these flowers. And, you know, we find out a little bit more about Roland's romantic side in this section. But I think this is kind of our first indications of underneath our like little tough outer exterior kind of logical blunt force Roland. There is kind of a little bit of a romantic here. And and this is our first sign of that. Uh, The second little tiny subtle thing that I thought was interesting was that 
she ranks Roland his third best friend, which yeah. totally tracks, right? You know, if you're imagining these three guys together, of course Roland is the one that he's, you know, is probably the most, not standoffish, but, you know, just the most Roland about it. Cooper's probably joking around. Elaine has that, like, kind of sweet, friendly energy. And then there's Roland, whose heart is good, but, you know, he like, he's probably just distracted and, like, tolerant, but not really engaging. So, you know. Third best friend sounds about right. Lastly, I think with the stuff with Cord yelling at Shimi, what my takeaway is as we go through this is the way that characters interact with Shimi and the way that they treat him is a very good barometer of their character. Of their evilness. Yes. Like the fact that she's so condescending and shouting in his face and dismissive tells you, like, if you are kind of waffling about how you felt about Cord in the last section, no, she's a straight up asshole. (laughs) You don't scream in someone's face like this under any circumstance. It's totally, it's so rude and disgusting. And calling him a fool and being nasty to him tells you exactly who she is. And, And I think the opposite is true, right? As we go into this next section, when Shimi and Susan interact again, I feel like we get a very, we get a validation of kind of what we thought her character was like based on the way that she interacts with him. Yeah, I, I agree with that 100%. Yeah. It's it's kind of weird. I wasn't expecting, like, I kind of knew it in the back of my head, but I wasn't expecting Shimi to be my main focus. And then right. like, all of a sudden I'm like, spotlight, look at this guy. I know. I just like him so much. He's so sweet. I don't know. And in this world, truly, like, there's so many, it's so rare for anything to be, like, pure. Yeah, and, like, there's a point um, earlier on where, like, the bartender is sort of describing Shimi, Mm -hmm. and his description, like, rolls into this moment where, like, he's a smiling face and a happy thought when nothing else is happy or smiling. And you're like, damn, that's dark. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, but it's totally accurate, right? Like, he's totally out of step with everything here. And he gets treated like shit for being different. But what is different about him is actually what makes him such an amazing character. Yeah, you know, so likable if you're not a total asshole. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so so we time travel forward, yeah, but not too far forward, only like a little bit forward (laughs) uh, to Susan, like in her bedroom, uh, about ready to go to sleep, and she's like reading the note that Roland gave her over and over again, which turns out to be sort of an apology and an impromptu suggestion for them to meet, uh, as it's very important for them to be together and talk mm-hmm. and uh, so, susan sitting up all night writing and rewriting mentally the note in response. but it's like such a simple note it's like okay I fine just <laughs> totally identify with that like that is i would to- that's totally something i do like i rehash things in my head like I, that's why i can never not have constant like stimulus because otherwise i'm just rewriting letters and rehaving conversations in my head i've never felt so seen by a character <laughs> So basically, uh, Susan, like, agonizes over this and finally decides that she's going to write a reply. And, like, the reply is basically like, I don't think it's proper for us to see each other. Done. No names, no nothing. Bah. And, like, <laughs> and, and then she, like, sort of, like, regrets it, but is also like, that's what I'm doing and rolls over and goes to sleep. And then, like, we pass to yet another future, still not the current present time of horse riding on the plains, uh, where like Susan like rolls into town, finds Shimi, uh, and gives him the note to like give to Roland, mm-hmm. and like 
immediately as soon as she hands it to him is like oh no did i do the right thing like i regret this immensely and like i should run away oh no run away and then like and like almost has this weird internal desperation of like embarrassment Mm -hmm. and also like excitement and then as she's wandering back away she like catches a glimpse of roland and then like it is like ah heart flutters And then, like, cut into scene. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I Like I said, it's great that we have this interaction with her and Shimi where, once again, it kind of validates the how you treat Shimi, Shimi tells you everything about your character. But it's just a cute moment between them. For instance, like, when she first sees him and he's singing and she sees he's wearing this pink hat. I mean, there's not a lot to this, but I do think there is a repeated reference to pink in this book that I'm starting to pick up on. Mm. You know, there's the pink flowers. Then there's the pink hat that he's wearing. And then that made me think of the pink glass that Rhea has. I don't know what that means. I don't know if it's if it's just weird non sequiturs and I'm trying to read into a bunch of stuff. But I do think it's worth kind of maybe paying attention to see if we continue to see the use of pink. And if with a few more data points starts to create a pattern of what that might actually mean. I don't know. Okay, you might need to cut this. But um, I was assuming since like... Rhea has a pink ball. Yeah. And like we keep repeating pink over and over again. Right. I thought it was just a bean flicking reference. <laughs> Am I wrong? Like I don't I I like I said, you might want to cut that. Like I don't know if that's appropriate. <laughs> but like it just felt like that all the way through. It was like bean flick, bean flick, bean flick, round and thing, pink, pink round thing, round <sighs> thing, pink. I mean you know, it's like the way that so much of everything that Susan is looking at is so lusty lusty you know what i mean yes, I, I guess it's not, exactly like she's looking at hills and it's like the shape of a woman's hip going <laughs> yep, into her exactly. like as she's laying on a bed i was like all right susan calm down girl cold shower <laughs> so who knows maybe you're right <laughs> okay I, I didn't want to be too like graphic but it's like man I, like everything is like a sexy thing it's like yeah. it doesn't even matter like it could be a horse stirrup or like riding the uh, pylon yeah. You know? and, yeah and like riding the pylon like what kind of metaphor is that you know god i didn't even think about it. <laughs> Oh my god this book is dirty i see why you were nervous for your neighbors to hear you <laughs> yeah well when like she's riding the pylon into the prairies i'm like oh my gosh is that a uh, i mean <laughs> yeah that's a total euphemism right there uh the other detail in this is that when she comes up he's singing a song called golden slippers which i looked up and is actually a song from our world it's basically an old spiritual that was popularized after the civil war and okay. was later like parodied by like men and uh, and turned into a, sto- a song called Dem Golden Shoes or Golden Slippers and was like popular on the minstrel show circuit which is not great by any stretch but it's also about the original version which this one is king specifically refers to it as golden slippers is about enslaved people expressing hope for freedom and meeting god and i was just like i couldn't quite ascribe any meaning to meaning to it do you think there's any significance to this or is it just sort of like a a random detail is it is the significance that it's from our world and a recognizable song okay so i I guess this is the question i have to ask like is shimi like um 
a, a basically like a, a servant of someone that we're not aware of. Ooh, I hope not. I ho- I mean, I, I'm well, not trying to be like dark or w- weird. It's just like I kind if of that's like, the reference, it like sort of puts that out there. Like the you know. I mean, I think he was the one of the horrors that worked. I shouldn't say horrors. One of the sex workers that worked at the <laughs> traveler's rest, and because the bartender kind of is like, it might be my son. I'm not really sure. Um, so maybe he was someone who just kind of like was raised there and kind of has worked like some sort of indentured servant or something like that. I mean, I think, yeah, I think he's just kind of always been there and they put him to work kind of thing. Gave him Hmm. all the like shitty jobs. He got all the Charlie work. If you're a, uh, it's always sunny fan. Yet again, we bounce in time. Yes, uh, yes. back to now. Back I to think almost we're present. present. Basically so. present, like pre-present by a little bit. So we're back to Susan, like riding on the prairie. She's like looking at hills, and as uh, Rachel alluded to, uh, she is imagining like the shapes of women's hips naked, and like thinking about Roland and like how quickly she would probably find herself to the bits and bops and (laughs) also like sort of upset about her predicament and like her agreement to Thorin and what she's got to do. And basically while riding and like brooding over these things, she kind of like looks off into the distance and there's an internal dialogue here where Susan is basically like, I know Roland likes to ride this area mm-hmm. and like maybe, you know, um, if I walk there long enough, I'll accidentally bump into him. Did you ever, and this, have you ever done that where you're like, just sort of like put your in the self in the path of someone? <laughs> I have not, but oh. I have had that happen to me. Oh, so, okay. Yeah. I, I remember in high school, I had a crush on someone I knew lived on the, around the corner from me. And so I would just like walk by trying to catch him outside smoking. <laughs> you just do like multiple passes until like one time you just run into him. Like, I, oh, I fancy I feel seeing like, you here. Yeah. I feel very Susan identified tonight. Apparently there was a girl at McDonald's who had the hots for me. Uh-huh. And uh, she, we both worked at McDonald's, but she worked other shifts a lot of times, and I worked like my regular shift. Uh-huh. And she would like sneak in and read my schedule, and oh. then like be casually hanging out in the lobby when I got off work. That's weird. But he's still to this day one of my very best friends. So all that stalking. What I'm saying is stalking works. People do it. No, 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 no. Stalking is bad. Don't stalk anybody. Stalk, please. Stalk. No, please, please get to know people, but don't stalk them stalk. because that is gets real weird. Stalking real them fast. is a great way to get to know someone. I mean, you know, when they eat, where they go, when they sleep. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Yeah, take scrupulous notes uh, minute by minute uh, in your notebook until you fill it up and then the next one. And, and write a the big heart on the front and then, yeah, exactly. Ooh. Get a piece of their hair. It's great. It's great. I recommend it. <laughs> it creeping me out just talking about it. Oh, man. Oh, I feel dirty. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> okay, right, so. Back, sorry, my face is like actually hurting from laughing. Okay, let's let's go. Let's go. <laughs> All right, back to Susan. So uh, she's brooding, and then, like, she kind of sees in the distance, is that Roland? Maybe it's Roland. Could it be Roland? I don't know. And then, like, sure enough, it's Roland. He rolls up to her. It's like, hey, girl, I'm on a horse. You're on a horse, too. We're like horse buddies. You want to talk? It's a little more, like, uh, 
uh, proper than that with yeah. theys and mays and eyes and thous and so on. But regardless, Roland rolls up and like they're both like Twitter painted over just like getting together mm-hmm. and, and like also like having strange little flashbacks of their first meeting and their kiss and like they're touching mm-hmm. and, and then like Roland well, let's, let's like pause here because th- this section kind of ends with them actually coming face to face and I don't want to get too far ahead because I have a lot okay, to say yeah. about this section and then we'll we'll get All into right. their conversation okay so so yeah so she's having when they when she's sitting here on the road she's having this big sort of like you know, I I could be practical if it wasn't for Will coming along. He ruined everything. I'd probably be totally okay with the situation if he hadn't come along. And you know, basically, kind of putting up this whole front about how she, you know, Roland ruined everything, and she just needs to see him one more time. It's not a big deal. She needs to see him one more time, so she can cut him back down to size in her mind, and you know, it'll be fine, and she'll move on. But I mean, it's totally immediately undercut with the confession that she has been like pulling a Rachel and has been like going on this same road for multiple <laughs> days in a row in order to run into him, right? And and it, when she's honest with herself, it is much more like you know the bitter disappointment when he's not coming over the horizon. All that stuff is real, right? And and like I said, everywhere she looks, she's seeing curves of a woman's body and all that stuff, right? Like that's really what's going on. And I understand that she, there are two parts of Susan at war with one another, but like one of them is definitely winning, and the other one's really trying. It's really trying. But the other thing that comes up in this section is that there is this this pattern of this specific motif King uses around their love story, right? And it is a constant referral to their feelings, their emotions being described in terms of the wind. So at their first meeting, she's having that internal dialogue with her father and he says to her, it'll come like the wind and your plans will stand before it no more than the barn before a cyclone. Then when she sees here, when she's on the road, she sees Will on the horizon. So, so then when they're face to face, they looked at each other in the drop silence, Roland of Gilead and Susan of Mages. In her heart, she felt the wind begin to blow. She feared it and welcomed it in equal measure. And then I'm going to skip ahead slightly. There's a point coming up really soon where she finally accepts his apology. And the quote is, I, she said, and if it, he had taken her in his arms at that moment. She would have let him and damn the consequences. But he only took his hat off and made her a charming little bow and the wind died. So again and again, we keep returning to this idea of their relationship, their love being like the wind. And so I looked up, of course, the symbolism of wind. And wind is symbolic for the messenger of the of divine intervention. Hello. That's very much what's happening right now, right? Is that Fair like... Enough. It often represents the fleeting, transient, and elusive, the elusive and intangible, which young love, come on, give me a break. And it symbolizes <laughs> the uncontrollable and raw power of nature. So in the case of Roland and Susan, I really feel like the wind is symbolizing that the two of them are being swept off their feet, obviously, and being pushed together almost like by a force of nature. In this case, that force of nature is Ka. In addition to that, reinforces the idea of the naturalness of their love and attraction for each other. There's all this unnatural stuff that's happening, like whether it's with Rhea or with Thorin and all of this kind of manipulation and perversion of love 
And then along comes Will, and it's this very natural two young people seeing each other attraction, falling in love. And and so I, that's why I think, again, we keep coming back to this comparison to the wind. Yeah, I, I mean, fair enough. Uh, they're just, like, really passionate teenagers. Yes, for sure. <laughs> for sure. And so, like, hanging the Gone with the Wind on there is, like, sure, why not? You know, passionate teenagers blown together in this, like, dusty old town. It's mm-hmm. like a Tom Petty song over and over again. <laughs> yeah, actually, that's a uh, that's a good comparison right there, mm. right? Or am yeah. I, like it's, it's so it's it's just kind of a fun because it's not it's not just that it's like epic, but it's also like so epic it's a little cliche. Yeah, Lud was a ZZ Top song, and Hambry and is, is a like Tom Petty song. Uh, yeah, Tom Petty song exactly. <laughs> like, right. Fair enough. Um, so basically, like Roland, like immediately sort of like hat held in his hands head down uh apologizes to susan for his uh his misconduct at the party and like insulting words and like immediately like as a stone cold killer roland is like and i love you (laughs) and it's not your fault it's all my fault i love you that's it there's nothing that changes there you cannot undo this this is it and she's like, what? How can you just be so serious about this? Mm-hmm. And like, Roland's like, it's not your fault. It has nothing to do with you, <laughs> which is kind of funny. And he's like, I love you. And that's it. And tossing that aside, you yeah. know, <laughs> let me talk about this other thing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And really quickly, I'll pause just so we can. Yeah. Um. So obviously Roland's game is not the strongest. <laughs> he just like <laughs> drops some truth bombs, but there's this great quote in here where she, when he like, she's blowing off his admissions of love. She's like, like externally. Well, but- she tries to like smile and like sort of throw in a joke that her dad taught her. Mm-hmm. And like Roland doesn't laugh. No. And he doesn't even like phase that. He just like kind of takes it as the a thing. Yeah. And she like internally rolls in and is like, well, I guess there's worse things than not having a sense of humor. I mean, I <laughs> disagree, but I mean, do you, boo? <laughs> you got to make me I laugh. Mean, but Well, it was, it was kind of fun because like she's like, at least he doesn't run up to me and grow up my boobies. That's true. Like, well, okay, yeah, you're right. I, I'm, I'm coming around. <laughs> But yeah, so there's this great moment here where she talks about seeing the truth of him and his romantic streak. And there is this picture in our minds of Roland as a character and for him to be sort of this romantic lead. It works in this book because he's so young, but it's not – that's just like not how I see him until – we got to this description of how like the romance in him works. And I was like, okay, I can see this. And I think it's really great writing on King's part where he says his eyes never left hers. In them, she saw Roland's truth, the deep romance of his nature buried like a fabulous streak of alien metal in the granite of his practicality. (laughs) (laughs) He accepted love as a fact rather than a flower. And it rendered him her genial it rendered her genial contempt powerless over both of them. And so in some ways, not only do we get to understand his romantic side, he's like perfectly suited to disarm her so that when she's like, yeah, right. That stuff only happens in the stories. When she sees this, she's like, no dude, we're in love. Shit. Shit. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Okay. You can keep going. No, no, it's, it's it's fine. It's kind of sappy. Roland as a like love character. It's like, hey, what's your favorite color? He's like, it's blue. It's definitely blue. 
Like, are you sure? Yes. Like, uh, okay. Anything yeah. else? No. <laughs> it's like, oh, all right. And that's how his like love statement is. It's like, yes. are you in love? Yes. Uh, yeah. Are you gonna elaborate? Are you gonna give me any more? No. I'm in love. That's it. <laughs> like, okay, fair enough. You've really like laid this out as a, like a plot point for us. Like, good job in uh, evaluating. Yes. And, and so, like, Roland, like, he, he drops that bomb, and then like he immediately is like, we have some important stuff to talk about. And she's like immediately like sort of like you mean about us being lovers now? Like that's not gonna work. We can't do that. And like mm-hmm. Roland's like, no, 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 this is it. Look at those horses over there. And she's like, okay. And she like looks at him, she's like, Yeah. And like it's fun because like he's like, How many horses do you think there are? And like Susan like immediately knows the number. And then she sort of like waits for Roland to catch up with the math. Mm-hmm. Like like almost, I guess like it's that fun thing that as a person married to someone way smarter than me, um, <laughs> my wife like immediately will be like, of course, this is the thing. And like all of misread the sign and be like, no, I think we need to go this way. <laughs> and it's like, yeah. And like, that's what this felt like to me. So like, it was kind of like being at home. It's like <laughs> she, she gets it. And like, he has to catch up to where she's at. And so it's kind of a fun bit. Um, and, and so like, basically what Roland starts to lay out, which actually to be fair to Roland is like, uh, Roland has a deep thought about this and she has the obvious practicality of seeing the thing. Mm-hmm. But Roland like is the one who has been stewing on this and sort of like deeply ingesting what's going on here. And, and it turns out that the numbers of horses that they've been getting from these affiliate folks and other people um, in the uh, pecking order are really inaccurate to the yeah. point where like – uh, he's like, well, what about threaded stock? And Susan's like, well, what are you talking about? Well, we don't really have threaded stock here anymore. Or unthreaded, like, muty stock. Yeah, yeah, unthreaded stock. You see it. And, and like, same thing, like, well, how many horses come out of each, you know, and like, how many are good? And like, almost all of them are, like, occasionally, like, every great once in a while, like, mm-hmm. there's a, there's a muty, but otherwise, like, our horses are good to go. And like, he's like, well, and they told us you maybe had 400 head. And he's like, that doesn't look like 400 dead. And she's like, no, that's like 960 or more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's like, holy crap. And like, what is going on here? And like, to this point, like, then he has to sort of like explain that like the folks at Hambury like basically think that these guys are dumb and wouldn't figure out what's right. going on. Genial and, contempt. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. And so like they've left like the answers out in plain daylight and it's actually sort of like if you've ever seen a clever shoplifter, the best shoplifters you see like coming out of Walmart or wherever you shop um, are those weirdo guys that like pretend like they're exactly where they're supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Like con- It's <laughs> like, like a vibe, like a confident vibe. People don't pay attention. Yeah. Yep. They got like an entire cart full of stuff and they've like had a long argument and then discussion with the manager about like why this TV hasn't shown up in the front yet. And then they just like storm out as though they own the place. You're like, fuck, did that guy even pay for this? Nope. <laughs> and like, that's what's sort of going on right here. It's like, yeah. it's like, they're like, yeah, you know, if I'm confident enough about this and like these dum dums roll in to look right. at it, they're not going to get it. Like, and, and so basically, Roland's onto him. Like, he realizes that holy crap, the affiliation 
uh, does not understand like what's here. And at at one point during the conversation, like Roland even asked her, like, "Are you strong for the affiliation?" Mm-hmm. And she's sort of like taken back, like. I thought we were in a different chapter here. Like, <laughs> you, you've turned the page and chapter to like somewhere else that I wasn't expecting. And she's like, well, I, I, I guess like, you know, my dad is for the affiliation. And yeah, she's like uh, culturally I, for the affiliation. Yeah. Like, like as, as a thing, heart. like, you know, like I'm, uh, you know, generally like in consensus with that, like seems like good idea. Okay, fine. No problem. But, but like, I'm not like, you know, diehard affiliation. He's like, well, what about these guys? Then like every time they're like expressing their love for the affiliation and trying to buy us drinks at every place. And I was actually a little confused. Maybe you can elaborate on this mm-hmm. on some of the drinks that they mentioned. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That were being like offered to them because I, I was and there was one that I was like, I don't know what that is. I'm just scrolling through here and I just saw. Her skin was pale, except for two wild roses. <laughs> roses pink, growing like on her cheeks. That he'd been given to her by Shay Way of Shimi. I'm like, okay, this is, I'm not, I, I I was wondering if I was like fully tinfoil hatting, but I mean, I can't even scroll through here without like running across like, an example of roses and pink being referenced. So I feel like you almost need like one of those old timey fans when you're reading this, like, oh, 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 cool me down, oh, cool me down, oh, holy cow. <laughs> yeah, this is a bit of a heat bosom of a chapter i don't remember what the alcohol was so we'll just leave it at that okay so <laughs> i think were, the point is it's off- alcoholic and they know they're they've taken a vow not to drink i think that's yeah, exactly. kind of the important takeaway there and so the the big thing is like they they basically have been like lying to him and then also like trying to get them to violate their like quote-unquote oath of mm-hmm. like being better kids whether they know for a fact that they're like trying to be better kids or not is beside the point but like Every place is like trying to basically <laughs> booze him up. And, and it's funny because Susan kind of laughs and like it basically explains to Roland like, hey, <laughs> you know, a lot of people around here will say they're swearing off the spirits. But that's like a thing they do for funsies. Like it's not a thing they actually do. <laughs> they mm-hmm. want to like show how uh, how conservative they are with their drinking. But then like they don't actually follow through with that. And that like basically emphasizes the fact that not only do these guys have uh, contempt for these folks and that they have like this giant chunk of horses out here that they've basically been lying to their faces about, but there is something genuinely afoot here in Hambury that doesn't add up at all. And why would this small town need that many horses right for any reason whatsoever unless they were raising them for i don't know maybe some kind of battle or something something i'm just throwing ideas out there Mm -hmm. this is not a spoiler and and so like we kind of like get to this moment where uh roland and susan like shake off this bit of conversation and have this passionate i look into your eyes and you look into my eyes and i kiss you until your bottom lip bleeds which is weird uh do you do uh, i hope no one does don't do that to your significant other it's not very nice (laughs) and then like don't like tastefully lick the salt of that blood off and be like it's "Mm, creepy (laughs) mm, tasty taste your bloods that's that's just not i don't know don't do that that's bad okay um And then, like, we get, like, Stephen King gets a little extra sultry with, like, him cupping her breast and, Mm -hmm. like, um, her basically, like, 
internal dialogue. He's, he could take whatever he wants from me right now, and I would let him. Mm-hmm. And like Roland, like pulling back from that. And, and so the basic result of this is that like Roland has the opportunity to sort of like take advantage of Susan in this moment. But the thought of how his mother was taken advantage of at the same time and his response to that makes him actually realize what's going on and, like, the dynamics of the situation to the point where Roland pulls back. But, like, he pulls back for a second and then as Susan, like, gets on her horse and is like, then forget about me. Forget about me, Roland. (laughs) He's like, but I'll touch your boot and come back to me. No. I shan't have it. I shan't have it at all. Oh, no. And it's like the super like back and forthy epic yeah. uh, young people dramatized moment where they're like, nope, can't sleep with you. Okay. Well, I would like to sleep with you. Me too. But we're in a situation here only with like lots of these and thous and like yeah. hand throwing and palm waving. So Rachel, you have a lot of stars here and yeah. I have summarized this in somewhat of a strange way. Yeah, and- I mean, it's fine. It's fine. I think – I mean, I I got some of the stuff I wanted to say early in, so that's good. But I will say, I mean, I just think we should point out that he – during this conversation, he has essentially brought Susan into his confidence. She still doesn't know he's, he's actually rolling of Gilead, but she he is now taking a step closer into the center of his confidence, but also into the center of the plot and the conflict. So that's probably not great. Um, you know – what I do love about this, though, as much as I am now concerned for her well-being, is that it allows us to have a new dynamic with Susan. Up until this point, she has very much just been the love interest and a likable one. I mean, I like Susan quite a bit. And I think she's well-written and smart and, you know, imperfect and very much a teenager. But she really did just exist to be this person that everybody wants to bang, right? So... <laughs> And now she's a confident or confident. Yes, I'm excited to see that she has a skill set that is useful, that has plot significance, that that you know there is a in addition to a romantic interest in in Susan from Roland's perspective, like he can actually see value in her. He consider he wants to he he can see that she has insight and she has knowledge and is valuable in other ways and that he trusts her and is interested in something from her mind all those things are really i think great and i think enriches her as a character well it's also funny because like it catches susan off guard because like she's in this passionate she's in the zone yeah (laughs) and like she's expecting roland to be like he's already like told her he loves her and like to be completely passionate too but then he goes spock on her and is like what about this (laughs) and she's like wait wait what like i thought we were in the sexy zone and like he's like we were but now we're in the question zone yes yes and so he gets his suspicions confirmed which is good and he's like jumping around like the most excited we've ever seen roland but the other thing that happens and is right away because nothing can ever be happy with roland is it turns takes a very dark turn when he kind of points out that yes there are too many horses on the drop and it's been happening gradually, so people didn't maybe notice, like, frog in the boiling water scenario, right? Mm-hmm. But the one person who would have noticed it is not present because he's dead, which is, of course, her father. Which immediately, you know, he doesn't he doesn't spell it out specifically, but his tone and the fact that there's all this evidence of these people who, you know, specifically Fran Lingle, who is the sole witness to the death of Pat Delgado, um, yep. is... 
dishonest. He is a liar. He will lie to some about something that is in your face. And so she had never had any reason to be suspicious before, but now she does. And I don't know that she's completely on board with the fact that potentially, and I think it's implied and we can feel fairly confident that Pat did not just die by accident. We don't know that for sure. I don't know if that ever gets a hundred percent confirmed, but my take I mean, from this is mean, a horse rolling over him, like, yeah. It happens, yeah. And yeah. But considering... I gotta thank you too for bringing this back because, like, I kind of skimmed past it while I was in the like throes of their like love and romance. I mean, I, I got bits. it, I got, yeah, for sure. I mean, it was. But ah! you were totally right. That is so important. Um, it, it, when Roland explains to her, like, yeah, well, he lied to us. Could he have lied to you? Right. And like, that's a like a deep seated planting of a question in your mind that right. once you've like heard it you can't unhear it and Susan's yeah. like oh. and it has the potential to change everything right you yep. know including yep. perhaps her the adherence with... yeah yeah yep. is she gonna need to keep this bargain if these people have conspired to kill her father I don't feel like she's gonna feel like she has to I don't know we'll see I don't remember I'm not spoiling anything this is just me reading into this specific section but I, I would suspect that if she su- thinks that the man that she's been, you know, promised to is consp- helped conspire to murder her father, she's going to feel no compunction about banging it out with the guy she actually likes. So <laughs> so we'll see what happens um, here. A the- roll in the hay, so to speak. Yes, exactly. That's a nicer way of putting it. I'm such a lady. <laughs> so the other last thing in the section that we need to talk about, I think, is I think it's uh, notable that Roland not only opened up about his feelings to her in a very direct way, <clears throat> he opened up to her about the stuff with his mom, stuff that he's not talking, as far as we know, has not spoken to anybody other than his father about. Like, that is some mm-hmm. really deep-seated, vulnerable stuff to the point where he, in the last time we talked, was flinching away from even thinking about it. He didn't even want to have that conversation with himself, and here he is opening up to Susan about it. And I, if that isn't, like... I want to be close to you. I want to be intimate with you. I, you know, emotionally intimate with you. I don't know what is. And, and so I thought that was extremely noteworthy. I mean, it leads into him talking about all of Thorin and explaining that. And then the, the make, the makeout session, the epic makeout session. But <laughs> as far as Roland, someone who like, we know is keeping things like so close to the vest to the point where it drives Eddie crazy for him to just be like, here is my moat. Like, here's my biggest wound. I'm exposing it to you is I think a pretty big character moment and leads to the epic kisses that he never forgets the rest of his life. We don't need to go into all the de- the boob grabbing detail, but I will say <laughs> the fact that the first time they finally like actually kind of for a second give in and just like freaking smash faces, he draws blood. <laughs> you know what I mean? I feel like if we are looking for ominous signs or portents or whatever the case may be, the fact that even them simply kissing led to her being wounded and bleeding is probably not a great sign. I again assumed that was like a Stephen King reference to L- Lady Virginity. I mean, blah, it's blah, blah, also blah. that. Yeah. <laughs> that is fair. It is also very much. That. I mean, I was trying not to be crass, They're so I didn't want to like, throw that at the, <laughs> out the window. But like, that's basically it. Was like Stephen King's like. This is what happens when you uh, make love, ladies and guys. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think there's definitely some of that. He's evoking some of that that imagery for sure for sure we cut back in time or maybe sideways in time to the sheriff and his team kind of like 
hanging out on the front porch watching the guys pass by the entire team and like it's weird because like sheriff avery and his deputies are like what do you think of those kids now are they soft boiled like you said before no, I think they're a little hard boiled. And then, like, the, all the time, like, the conversation is punctuated by the sheriff just, like, cutting farts. I know. <laughs> like, Does really that mean big he got ones. more, like, um, stuff from Rhea? Is that what we're meant to think? Or is he just, like, a farty yeah, dude? I don't, I don't know. I was, like, he's I like, was oh, a little taken back farts. by that. And then my favorite statement, and, like, this one I might have to use in real life, is he's, like, there's more room outside than in, folks. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, where is the lie? <laughs> like, that's, that's and and so, like, we basically, like, get this moment where, like, these guys are actually still watching these guys paying attention. They're, they're even, like, their conversation is actually about what they've spent their time doing, which is counting fishnets. Um, and, and the fishnet thing is, like, stupid and these guys know it's sort of dumb. Right. And they're trying to decide whether the dumbness is like a front to I think lull them into security it. or not. Well, they're kind of on the edge because like you can't hold that part in your head and hold that these guys are like good fighters who stood up against the uh, coffin hunters and that the town is now calling them like baby coffin hunters or little something like that. Little coffin hunters, yeah. Little yeah. – yeah, little coffin hunters and like – the town as a whole like now has like this sort of like mystique about these yeah. guys that wasn't there before. And so to know that they're cutting enough to like defeat some of the hardest fighters in town and also to know that they're like counting fishnets in the same – in the sa- hold those two things in the same mind sort of like contradicts itself. Yeah. And so these guys feel like they're wrestling with whether or not these guys know what's going on or don't know what's going on. Mm-hmm. And they're still leaning towards not knowing. But that not knowing is like punctuated by this almost like what they eat. Like, oh, those guys are just going to go have some popkins down at the popkin diner. Mm-hmm. Whereas I'm a real man and I like to eat meat and I need to get the meat inside of me. And it's like, well, okay, I guess like your <laughs> gout is really important to you and like them just getting sandwiches because it's a thing is, is fine too. Mm-hmm. But he, he almost like the separation, to, at least to me, felt like it was like, well, I'm a man and those are just kids. Yeah. So like I still have put them into the kids category as opposed to the man's category. Right. And, and that's sort of what it felt like they were saying when they were like, kind of having this conversation and yeah my takeaway wa- was that they kind of like well what do you think and they were like no we think they're tough but dumb yes and yeah yeah and the sheriff's like oh thank god they're idiots essentially <laughs> they were like no sir you are an idiot but it's good because you know there's a lot of black boxes in this book right we we know little bits and pieces and we're missing other pieces much like roland himself like we kind of don't really know what's going on we can sense that there things are off we can see pieces of it we can't quite put it all together um so getting this little bit of insight is actually helpful that even though Obviously, Jonas and his crew are kind of on to Roland, and um, he they're investigating that right now. Our other townspeople, like our other sort of cons- conspirators in town, are still underestimating the guys. So, like, at least we have that bit of information that, that we don't. We know that they're not ahead of Roland and the gang 
at least on so that So do level. you think they're, like, legendary, like the guy that accidentally, like, jumped off of a four-story building and, like, landed perfectly well, in, like, there's... a tiny cup of water? And they're like, yeah, look at that guy. And not as, like, that was also super cutting. I mean, I think they think that they're kind of badasses, but that's not the same thing as being smart. Uh you know what I mean? Like they kind of got maybe to some degree got lucky or they're good with the guns, whatever. They have some training around that. They're tougher. They're they're not just like uh, naive kids in that respect. But here they are. It's, you know, we've got horses out on the drop. The horses are the big deal here around here. But these kids are over here counting nets. God, they're idiots. You know, but what what that actually means is that Sheriff Avery and his deputies are the idiots. But Playing just, a poor game of castles. Is that why? So do you think that's why, like, Stephen King spent a lot of time talking about the sheriff just, like, farting? Yeah, I mean, he's like definitely kind of your a comic relief guy. of this of this book, right? Like, I, I feel like he, Stephen King definitely wants us to feel a very specific way about this, like, mean, dumb sheriff. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And it's kind of, this leads into the next section because it's all about their frustration of having to go count these nuts and look like idiots. They don't care about looking like idiots, but that they're wasting their time there. But it kind of validates what Roland is having them do because it's working. We find out it's actually working, at least on, at least for Sheriff Avery and his ilk. We don't know about Jonas because we don't even see it. We don't check in with him this chapter, but it's working. So... All right, so last section we cut possibly into future time from this point. I think, I think we're now time. we're now we're like a hundred percent present now. Okay, okay, so a hundred percent present. Like now we're with Roland and the gang at, at the uh, bar K uh, where they've been staying, mm-hmm. and like basically like uh, Keithbert and Alan ha- are are kind of grumpy that they've been like tasked with this monotonous work. And they even, like, sort of in their internal dialogue aren't just like, yeah, I hate monotonous work. They're like, I hate monotonous work if it's stupid and pointless. Yeah. Like, I'm fine doing work that, like, needs to be done that's repetitive. Like, no problem. You know, if they're, like, building saddles or something like that. But, like, counting the nets, like, they all know that counting the nets is not uh, useful and that there's nothing to see in the, like, seafaring group of these people. Like, it's a waste of time. Mm-hmm. And so they're grumpy about that. And, like, Roland rolls up. um, after like his his experience with Susan and like ominously this like bird flies down and sort of like lands on his shoulder and it's like this ominous moment where the gang is like looking at him and Elaine like reaches over and like as quick as could be picks like a little thing off of his shoulder mm-hmm. and like holds it as like a sort of a thing and they uh, open the note from the pigeon and like it's basically asking in code if like there's anything going on there that they should know about because the troops have split into two sections, a bigger section and a smaller section. And Elaine, we find out, um, isn't very good at reading this sort of thing. Yeah, he like, isn't able his... to do the code from memory. Yeah. Yep, exactly. Whereas like Keithbert and Roland are basically like on it and like also like um elaine basically starts explaining some of the stuff that they've had to deal with and and keith burt like he is the solid numbers guy so as elaine's explaining this like 
he like no there's four people there or you know no no it's this place and like is getting in all of the proper details of like what's going on with the the, the things that they've seen and so roland like is sort of like in a little bit of a daze and they ask him how he wants to respond in this note with the the pigeon and like he's like well okay um you know nothing to see here uh still not sure just send it back and like the meantime like one of the things that i wasn't expecting is that while they're like looking around and they did see some of the horses is also they saw like oxen and i i hadn't gotten this until this moment that like apparently uh, horses are completely uncommon but oxen are like unheard of right and so like roland's like quickly like did anybody else see you see that and he's like, no, 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 no. Uh, it was just me. Like, no one, no one noticed it. Uh, oh, okay, okay. And then, like, that's that moment where, like, we've just triggered, like, I don't know, four red flags about what Roland should say in this note. And instead, he sends the wrong response. And, like, you get the internal dialogue of Elaine and uh, uh, Keith Burt. And they're like, this is the first time I've actually doubted Roland's yeah. um, decision-making skills. And, like, mm-hmm. this does not feel like the right thing. And, and Roland's like, send it. I'm heading off to bed. And, like, uh, Elaine, like, when Roland disappears, like, pulls out this thing that he plucked off of Roland's shoulder and it's like a big, long piece of blonde hair. Mm-hmm. And Keith Burt like looks at it, and they're both like, it, "You get this moment where you realize that they're kids, but they're also sort of like young adults at the yeah. same time. Where they're like sort of giddy. They're like, oh, damn, that guy's got got a girl on the side.' And yeah. then like at the same time, they're like, "Oh no!" And like Keith Burt like literally like puts a hand up to his head and makes like the gunshot gesture. Yeah. And they're like, there's dread and fear at the same time. Yeah. And that whole moment, like basically spells out that Roland, mm-hmm. the man of the hour, the thinker and the Their like leader. steadfast person yeah. is turning out to be like dumbfounded by girl things yep. and is not working on all cylinders to focus on the thing that they're supposed to be focusing on. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and the thing is, is Roland thinks he's being so slick and he's keeping secrets and he's not doing a very good job. He's not only letting he's evidence He's being as slick as by, that kid with chocolate on his face, like, who just ate all the cu- cupcakes. They're already suspicious. They can tell something is up. And, mm-hmm. yeah. So, because, like I said, a lot of times, because we only get a few perspectives, we don't really... We didn't really know where Elaine and who's what were sitting with this. And now we know that they're, like... They know their friend and they're onto him. Um, yeah. So, the section I love, we actually start out with a brand new perspective that we've never had before, which is we're finally in the head of Elaine. Which is, you know, he's he's been of the group, the one we know the least about. You know, we know Cooper's character fairly well. Obviously, we know Roland really well. Uh, but even roland never really talks about him so we don't really know him that well so what we kind of discover right away is that that elaine is maybe he's not as good at reading remembering code things like that but he has his own set of strengths you know he's a good tracker he is uh very intuitive and he has access to the touch which i guess is essentially the shining right Mm-hmm. some sort of psychic gift and because i know that ria it's ria also talks about having or yeah access to the touch or whatever so it's interesting to kind of get a new perspective there's a moment where when he plucks the hair off of roland he kind of internally is like proud of himself like hmm, 
Kuthra couldn't have done that. He was a little bit quicker and more deft with his hand. So it, it's it's nice to finally get a little bit more insight into him. Uh, the other thing you talked about, they were not happy about doing the nets and the counting of the nets and how they smell. They still He talks about how he still kind of feels like he smells like seaweed. And it <laughs> reminded me of a previous scene where, if you recall back in the Shimi chapter, there was something very similar happening with DePape and Reynolds. And remember I said that I felt like they were proxies for one another. This is another example of how they're like kind of rhyming, right? In this case, they're mad after spending a whole day counting nets, this useless task, and they smell like seaweed. Whereas the big Hoffman hunters, they had spent a whole day covering up the tankers and were like sticky and covered with sap and smelling of pine. And so it's, it's just a little repeat, right? That kind of, again, talks about like the, the, the how they are kind of, similar in some ways um Mm -hmm. so i thought that was kind of interesting and then i guess i actually so you i wanted to ask you what you thought about the response that he sent so elaine obviously is upset that roland is saying that there's nothing to report and he feels like that could potentially be the wrong thing why what do you think about this do you think it is that he is distracted and is making an error do you think he is or do you think maybe there's he's making he is making the right call i don't know what do you think about that i think he is making the wrong call the the reason is it's like basically that number okay so the scenario we have let's let's paint this from the beginning is that in the note it basically describes the fact that they're chasing the the bandits or the rebellion or whatever um and they've split into two parties a smaller party and a larger party. Right. And so if you're a strategist, um, which I am not, but <laughs> I will pretend to be for this moment here, is okay, so if you are chasing someone and you have an army, like your the best use of your army is to maximize the uh, uh number of people that you can attack, right? Right. And so what this tells me is that the small portion is breaking off towards Hambury mm-hmm. and that the large portion is a distraction to go the other direction oh, interesting. and pull the forces away. Mm. So by Roland not disclosing that these guys have, you know, thou- uh, almost a thousand head of horse and oxen and other things, like he is basically doing them a disservice because if he'd have let them know that they had that many people yeah. of, or that many horses available, like manpower seems to be in in um uh, low demand like you have tons of people to throw at things here right but having like horse like real things like unthreaded stock and horses mm-hmm. and then plus we've already found out there's oil tankers yeah. which means like machinery potentially could also right be employed, if, they, if right? they have yeah if, if farson has a refinery yeah yeah that's exactly. not good that's not good and so basically what we find out is that like if these guys can get a hold of a ton of horses and mechanization at the same time, they don't need to break off a huge portion of their army to do it. They just need to break off the people that have the skills to deal with like the the uh, big rigs to move the oil tanks mm-hmm. or the to herd the horses to where like the rest of the the manpower is and then they will immediately have an upper hand on the rest of the people that they're fighting so by Roland not telling them that like we have discovered a crazy amount of horses here and it's weird 
that has basically given them no signal as to what to do. And then your distinctive action would be to follow the numbers. So whatever the biggest group is, is who you would chase after. And you wouldn't even concern yourself with the smaller group. And so like, uh, as a person who's played risk and that's the only reason, the only thing I'm basing yeah. this on is no, my I mean, that's experience helpful. is like, this is like the classic, um, what is it? It's, I think there, there's a pincer on the old, yeah. Well, on the, no? on the old okay. risk board, there was a place called like Yakuts and Yakuts was like this place that you kind of ignored, but if you ignored it for too long, like enough people would build up on that, that uh, country and then would just like fall back through these places that you had under defended as you were moving forward. <laughs> oh God. Yeah. Yeah. I think and so, like, you swayed me. I do think he made a – this is a poor judgment. of yeah. Oh, were you on the other on the other was, side before? No, 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 no. I was kind of unclear. I wasn't – like I kind of felt like the narratively they were telling me this, but I was kind of like, well, I mean he doesn't really have anything specific. Maybe he doesn't want to mislead them and give them half information. But I think now I feel 100% on the same page as you. I think it is a mistake. Oh, Roland nailed it Woo! <laughs> yeah um so just last thing two things is uh i do love this little moment between cooper and elaine because we know the dynamic that roland has with them well to some degree but this is our first time i've seen the two of them interact and so that was just kind of a nice character moment i will say though <laughs> the way that this chapter closes is pretty ominous it's very evocative and also kind of portents maybe not good things like okay so it says sitting on the steps was at the back to them roland looked toward the dying sunset with dreaming eyes like everything about that is troubling like he's got his back turned to his friends he's distracted he's looking off into the distance with dreaming eyes at a dying sunset that is uh none of that is good <sighs> all right dj what did you think of this section <laughs> what did you think of this chapter um so it was a little like heated in the the loins and, and groins sort of way. <laughs> someone put it on a t-shirt heated in the loins uh, and groins <laughs> <laughs> but you know like it, it was fast-paced yeah um the fight between cord and, and like so uh, i wanted to back up and ask you this real quick before we we finish up um cord and cord so like roland's cord yeah and oh, you mean court? yeah court and cord like oh. i feel like those names are so close together and like one is like roland's tribulation and the other is susan's tribulation oh. and I, I i wanted to ask you like do you think there's like a uh -huh. almost like a um you know in Fievel where he's like singing from the like top of the water tower and she's like singing from like a somewhere else somewhere there. else yeah, uh -huh. and like it almost felt like they're they were meant to be like almost a mirror of them coming of age mm, that's in the same manner oh yeah that's interesting like they're both sort of the instruments of their yep exactly like abusive like, instruments of mm -hmm. their coming of age that is really i had not thought about it but you're right that's really. And I'm sorry, I should have brought that up earlier. It's just like when you asked me to finish it, I'm like, oh man, I forgot that part. <laughs> no, strong finish, dude. Strong finish. That gives me something to think about. 
Corey I, I want to put that Corey. out to you listeners, guys. Um, yeah. Because I, it sort of felt like the names were so close. Yeah. And, and that, like, the situation, while, like, one is battling, the other one is mentally battling. Yeah. And, like, the outcome was, like, an early release that was too soon and, like, not ready for the world that they're being injected into. Yes. And, and it's so mirroring that, You're like, totally I want to know what right. everybody thinks about this because that's what I got out of it. But who knows if I'm just like overanalyzing or not. No, 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 no. I like it. This is, this is the stuff I like. I think you there, that could very well be because I mean, we know that Stephen King loves setting up these parallels, right? Like it's the same mm-hmm. reason that we've got the three and three gunslingers and little gunslinger or the big cuff and hunters and the little cuff and hunters. And, and now you're right. There is kind of a court cord thing in terms of the roles that these characters play in their lives in this very specific moment. And if you think about like, how call works that like both of these people are instrumental in this like in facilitating this at in order for them to like kind of do whatever it is that they're supposed to be doing and put them on the whatever path they're supposed to be on i do think that there's something interesting there could it be tinfoil hat sure but could it be something more it could be it could it be. It feels it feels so like wheel of Kai. Yes. That you're just like yes, come it on. Does. Come yes. on. Is that what that's 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 gotta be what's going on, right? Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Question mark. History rhymes. I'm just saying. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Yeah, I enjoyed this chapter a lot. I didn't like it quite as much as the previous one because the previous one was so epic and so like, ooh, but I did feel like like I said, emotional catharsis around her finally saying all the things to Gord that I've been like shouting at the book. I do think that pull I feel like that it's done a really good job of bringing all of our characters even like tighter and tighter into this plot. And I think that as much as I don't really like romance, I do. I am finding myself getting a little invested in in uh, Roland and Susan, just because just because you know it's going to end badly. I mean, I I don't know it's going to end badly, but like, come on, it's going to end badly, right? I, like all I the feel... signs are there. That's not a spoiler. Like, yeah, yeah, you know, definitely. Like that is you star-cross lovers who aren't meant to be together. Yes, and exactly. then they end up getting together. Yes, exactly. So I I don't know. I think it's. I thought it was really great. I loved that we got to know Shimi a little better. We got to know Elaine a little better. I, yeah, I think this is a solid. There are some episode or chapters that just feel like nothing has happened or it's fluffy fluff. And this one, like, kind of, if you take a. Like, not a lot of things happen, but, like, there's a lot of depth to the things that do happen. Did you get a weird, like, bit of uh, high school nostalgia for, like, your first crush or your, I mean, like, second crush? I like, told I, you I, oh. I stalked someone. Yes, yeah, 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 I that's totally true, that's true. did. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Like, I was just, like, when I was listening to this, I'm like, and, like, it's almost, like, a little cringy because you're, yeah. like, young me. And, yeah. Oh, boy, that was ridiculous. And then you're like, was I this bad? Like, I hope, like, Stephen King is not writing me because I don't want to be in this book. I felt a little – I felt very – like, there were a handful of moments where Susan did stuff that, like, not grown-ass Rachel would do, but, like, Take me on yours! Rachel. Yeah. <laughs> It's a little too accurate. All right, <laughs> cool. So plan for the next episode for those of you at home who are playing along. We, uh, we're going to do another one of our little kind of semi-supersized episodes. We're going to be covering chapter eight, Beneath the Peddler's Moon, which is a shorter chapter, and chapter nine, Sitko, which is a little bit longer. So, But it's two weeks. You can read that in two weeks, right? Right. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Connections to Stephen King universe. A none that I spied this time. So if I miss something, I will come back to it. Stephen King adaptation news. 
just briefly, it's been a rough couple of weeks for Stephen King adaptations. Both Castle Rock and The Outsider were canceled by Hulu and oh, HBO, no. respectively. Supposedly, The Outsider might be getting, they're like shopping it to Netflix. So hopefully we're going to see Netflix will two. buy anything, but only to season three. Yeah, don't, don't, don't fall in love with anything on Netflix. <laughs> but it would be nice to get a set because there's two stories. And they would be adapting the one that's like the short story. And I'm bummed about Castle Rock because like I kind of feel like that one had a lot of connections to the Dark Tower. And I would have loved to have seen a Dark Tower season. You know, we've got a misery season. Would have been nice to. But whatever. R.I.P. But that's <laughs> that's okay. There are still some other adaptations in the works still coming are on Apple TV. Lisey's story, which is Definitely has connections to the Dark Tower. So that's still coming. And then obviously CBS All Access is The Stand is still coming next month. You know, some things must die so that others can rise, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and we, I, you know, I think we, we talked about we're going to cover The Stand. So I'm looking forward to that. All right. So that just leaves one of my favorite parts of the show, which is, of course, the listener feedback and Facebook group question we didn't get any letters this time but we did put a question on the facebook group if you're not already on there you should come over and join this time we are going to be casting our dream susan delgado for the movies do you want to go first or um yeah yeah so like i um i think i answered this at the the beginning oh right i changed my mind oh um actually twist. uh so so like after talking about all this impassioned stuff yeah and like every everything else that goes along with it i was like you know what this feels like an episode of my so-called life oh and like i'm like okay young claire danes there done. you go oh my mic gosh. drop Oh, when that Romeo and Juliet movie came out, I was obsessed with Claire Danes. I like <laughs> so excellent casting, I guess, is the point. <laughs> so for me, I'm going to do mine at the end because I'm stealing kind of like lightweight stealing from one of our listeners. So let's go to what they said. All right. So our first answer comes from Ryan and he says she's 15 to 16 in the books. So how do you cast someone of the right age? Sexual harassment and abuse uh, that Susan deals with is quite intense in the books. And I think that's very accurate. Milo chimed in and said, you basically just got to cast someone who is 20 who looks like they're 15. And I think that is the right call. All right. So with that in mind, Katie weighed in and I love her suggestion, actually. I guess you'll just have to Google these because you know you're not going to know who any of them are. Yeah, I'm not going to know anybody. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, so this first one is really interesting, and I had not thought of her, but now after hearing it, I'm kind of like, yes, this is a good one. She suggests Florence Pugh. She's an amazing actress who is young enough to pull off the teenage role, and she is a phenomenal actress, and I agree on every count of that and she's so the thing is, is like susan has to be like so beautiful on sight that you're just like oh my god and i kind of feel like that is totally florence Pugh. so florence Pugh was in midsummer little women and little women and black widow yes um, yes yep yes so you know who I, that is. i'm 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 googling it right now and uh yeah thoughts on um, florence Pugh. Uh, she seems fine. Um, might maybe too good of an actress for what I think Susan would be. <laughs> like you may have, you have may, maybe have like shot above your level. Uh, I do. I mean, more Florence Pugh is always preferable, so I vote yes. All right. Uh, next up, Carissa says 
I feel like Sophie Turner would do an amazing job. She could fit the young Susan perfectly in my head. You know, I think she's actually a blonde in real life, so that's actually perfect. So Sophie Turner, you don't know who this is, but she was on Game of Thrones. She was Sansa Stark. Oh, okay. Um, I vaguely recognize her from Dark Phoenix and yes, X-Men Apocalypse. Yes, she was. Exactly. Yes, yes. She also was in those things. You know, Justice for Sansa Stark. She was always one of my favorites, even though everybody did not love her. Justice for Sansa. Okay. <laughs> Tim weighs in and he has some interesting suggestions and he's the person who I'm going to kind of like steal ideas from because he and I were actually on two counts like 100% on the same page so first person he suggests is Sorsha Ronan has the acting chops to make the character layered and believable but I think Anya Taylor-Joy from The Witch would absolutely be phenomenal in this role. Now, that is the person I initially thought of because, again, it comes back to this idea of how striking Susan is. Oh, yeah, she's got the eyes. Exactly. And how Roland, like, just, like, loses it when he sees her eyes and, like, oh, my God. Anna Taylor, Mm. Anya Taylor-Joy's eyes are phenomenal. So that was my first choice. He goes on to say, that's if we want to cast her true to her appearance in the book, hashtag Susan so white. <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> touche, Tim. Because like he goes on to say, I agree. With the surname Delgado, her aunt's name Cordelia, and the name Magus reminding me of Mexico, it always struck me as struck me that a Latinx actor would, would fit the bill. I sadly, embarrassingly can't think of any by name whom I would add to the Dreamcast. So I was thinking the exact same thing because like there's all this use of Spanish language, not always correctly, but it's clearly a huge cultural influence. So it's very strange that everybody there would be white or that Susan would be white. So I'm kind of like, if I were going to recast this movie, this would be a perfect opportunity to inject some diversity into the cast. So I would totally go, if it wasn't Anna Taylor-Joy, who is who I just love, I would definitely go in that direction. So really quickly, here's my dream casting. If we were going to try to go, she might be a little too old, so you would have to maybe age up the characters a little bit. If we went a little older, would be Ana de Armas. So she was in Blade Runner 2049. Okay. Did you see Knives Out? Yes. She's the main girl in Knives Out. The housekeeper. Oh, okay. That's the main character. So she is stunning, in my opinion. Yeah, she looks a little too fancy for... Yeah. Like, you almost need, like, the eyes thing is good, but, like, you need a, like, sort of plain person. Because Plain. Susan's, like, supposed to be – well, Susan's, like, hot, but, like, small-town hot. But I think she's like, not small-town hot. I think that's the point. I think she's crazy freaking hot. Really? Yeah, because Roland hmm. – Lu- he sees her on the road in the dark and is in love with her and then is beside himself when he sees her in person. And he's from Gilead. He's a big city boy, and I think he's totally disarmed by her. Okay, so the other option, if we wanted to get closer to the age, and this one I feel a little creepy about, but she is 20 years old, so I'm not a total creep. It's just that what I know her from makes me feel like a creep. So the person, the other person I was, I had in mind was Isabella Merced, who is beautiful, has stunning eyes, but is probably best known for being in the live action Dora the Explorer movie. What? (laughs) 
I don't know if I'm completely familiar with that particular movie, but okay. <laughs> so it's a movie. It's based on the cartoon. She's a teenager in the movie, but she's older now. This would be a good like kind of character turn, right? <laughs> like, like if she wanted to get away from being Dora, this would Susan would be a, a different direction to go in. I don't know. They, I think either of them, depending on which way you wanted to go, if you wanted to age them up or keep them young, would work. All right, cool. So that is it. Uh, for those of you at home who want to get in touch, please feel free to drop us a line at castofcaw at zombiegirls.com or come over and join us on the Facebook book group. We love to chat with you over there. If you're enjoying the show, leave us a review on iTunes. And I guess we'll see you in a couple weeks. Now, DJ, if they want, in the meantime, if they need more time with you, where can they find you on the internet? Oh, you can swing over to deadliner.com and check out the latest uh, uh, Splattercast episodes or Deadlander podcast, excuse me. Uh, we have dropped the uh, <laughs> Splattercast branding. Uh, uh, you can also uh, swing over to Etsy at Muffin Spank and buy some of my synthesizer cases. Uh, they're selling fast. I'm currently sold out. Uh, you can also uh, go watch historical episodes of me on YouTube, ranging all the way back to 2008, where people still comment to this day, asking me questions about cameras. And it's weird because the video is 12 years old do you think i'm going to respond <laughs> probably not but maybe because sometimes i think these comments are really funny uh, rachel where can people find you well you can actually find me on the dead lantern podcast because <laughs> i got to come and join you for one episode where we talked about post-election stuff and it got deep. I, I think half of that's going to get cut. I really <laughs> hope most of it gets cut. <laughs> but in theory, that's where you could find me. Also on the Stream Queens podcast, where we review horror films that you stream on the internet. The Zombie Girls podcast, where we just review horror films in general. Uh, we got a holiday episode coming up pretty soon. Uh, the one that came out this week is about the movie Lomageddon. Um, So that's a thing that we talked about for some reason. <laughs> and then, of course, more deadly, where we review horror films that are directed by women. And that's 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 about it, man. That's about it. All right, DJ, take us out. Now close your eyes and imagine for a moment you're standing in the hallway with your lockers on one side, classrooms on the other, and Jordan Catalano walks by you. He shakes his hair, he spins it back, and you as Claire Danes fall to the ground with your emotions of naked womenness because that's what we experienced in this episode. And take that with you. Paint it in your heart because good night, folks, and we'll see you next time. Jordan Catalano. Bye, everybody.